following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, turn with me, like I said, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and uh, let me tell you, if the news reports are correct, and frankly, I have a hard time believing it, we're going to live in a time when humanity has a colony on Mars. Have you seen this? I'm like, is this, a, is this like some kind of a sick joke? Is this for real? Like, is it April 1st? Like, this is a big April Fool's Day thing, right? No, it doesn't seem like it. So despite the news reports and the blogs and the internet posts, I'm like, I'm reading this stuff. I'm just like, this can't be for real. Uh, But apparently it is. They had 200,000 people apply for, to be part of the journey, a one-way trip to Mars with no return flights scheduled ever. (laughs) Really? And 200,000 people signed up for this? So worldwide, they had 200,000 people that signed up, and they've narrowed it down to 100 people, now known as the Mars 100. And the construction of the colony will begin in 2018. Lockheed Martin has already drawn up plans for the satellites and the lander and all of these things. And the goal is uh, to establish a self-sustaining colony of 24 transplanted earthlings. That's awesome. (laughs) Transplanted earthlings. (laughs) Uh, and they're going to begin, they begin construction in 2018. They send the first two people in 2025, that's 10 years from now. And then two, two more people consequently every other year. So this is incredible. Uh, so the colony known as Mars one, uh, is just, um, is this for real? It struck me because Mars one medical officer, his name's Norbert Kraft, said in a statement, and this is great, they're narrowing the people down because uh, the funding for this project is going to come from, be ready for it, sign of the times, the whole thing is going to be broadcast as a reality TV show. I'm like, no, seriously, this really is a joke. Uh, But apparently not. And so Norbert Kraft, the medical officer from Mars One, as they've narrowed it down to 100 people, and now they're going to boil it down to two people who will be the first to go. And he said, being one of the best individual candidates does not automatically make you the greatest team player. So I look forward to seeing how the candidates will continue to work together in the upcoming challenges. Interesting. See, how they interact with other people as a team player will have ultimate bearing on whether they succeed. And of course, you see the connection. That's true on Earth also. Uh, Even these unbelieving scientists sending people to Mars recognize that the most important thing about people who are called to accomplish something great is that they have to be able to work well together. How humorous then that it seems like humanity seems to have the greatest struggle with that very thing, right? Uh, But this is particularly important for us as a church, isn't it? Because we have been called to accomplish something great. In fact, something far greater than any mission to Mars. We've been entrusted with the very ministry of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with the eternal gospel of God to be lived out in our lives and then spread to Burbank and Glendale and Hollywood. And is it that way? And Hollywood and the whole world. And like the scientist said, the most important thing about people who are going to accomplish something great is that they be able to work together well. So that's where Calvary Bible Church gets off on doing a four-part series on fellowship because we believe it's critical for us as a body to work together well. But I have to tell you, I think maybe I missed like a pastoral staff meeting in there somewhere. I'm thinking it probably went something like this when they were planning this, you know. Hey, let's, Tim, Tim Karn says, let's do a four-part series on fellowship, right? And Kempis 
being the wise man that he is, probably said, yeah, that sounds great, but, you know, four parts, that's a lot. I mean, what if we run out of things to say at the end? At which point I'm guessing it was Ed who said, that's okay, just make Jason go last. (laughs) Makes sense, right? Okay, no. Uh, I like to think about it like it's actually been really interesting for me to sit here on the front row and listen to these other three guys preach about fellowship knowing that like my turn is coming, like, right? Like, oh, I was going to say that. Ooh, oh, you stole that. Oh, okay. Uh, And then Ed stole my illustration last week about the tram, you know? So, but no, so we talked about the, that fellowship is kind of like the, the tram, right? Like the metro tram line that runs between the 210 out past Pasadena. And there's like the electrical line, you know, and you're driving along and this thing's whizzing by next to you and whatnot. You try to race with it. You ever do that? And we talked about how like fellowship is like everybody being on the tram, headed in the same direction together. And there's a unity there because we're all going in the same direction and there's a, there's power. So I like to think about it like, you know, Tim Carnes kind of started out the series giving us the engineer's look at fellowship, right? Kind of like, here's the control panel and this relative clause here means that the tram has to function this way. And uh, and then Kempis gave us more of like the passionate call to fellowship, right? The, the desire, the need for it. Or as Kempis might say, like, this tram is too great for people to be sitting on the sidelines, <laughs> beloved. So get up off your backside and get on the tram. See? And then Ed kind of followed things up by giving us the picture of the power of the tram. Like, okay, it's all there. Everybody's on. But how does it go down the tracks? What's the power behind this thing? He talked about how the connection between the cross and the resurrection is like the power that runs in the line that keeps the tram moving the way that it's supposed to be going. So everything can be functioning the way that it's supposed to for everybody on board, right? Now I get to preach to you about the flavor of fellowship. Ultimately, what it feels like to be on the tram. Not how it works, not what it does, not that you need to get on the tram. All those things are true, but what it feels like when you're on the tram and everything's running smoothly. So this morning, we're going to look at the flavor of fellowship in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and how it makes us people people. And, and as we look at this passage, what I want you to notice is three facets of fellowship's flavor. Let me read this passage. And 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8 says, But we prove to be gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you or to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives. Pastor Tim asked me to preach this specific passage because uh, this is something I've been talking a lot about in student ministries with our staff. In fact, most of my volunteer staff Uh, who are in here first service, because now they're up with the teenager second service, are just tired of hearing me preach and talk about this passage, right? That's how much we talk about it. This is a defining passage for us in student ministries, and this is one of the defining characteristics of our ministry uh, to the students of this church, and I believe also ought to be one of the defining characteristics for all of us as a church, but especially for our elder board, for our deacons, for our lay leaders, for our pastors. And I say that because as I've studied this passage, I've noticed that it's primarily a call to the leadership of the church to be lead fellowshippers, as Paul talks about his ministry to the Thessalonians. And the rich truths of this passage, therefore, apply first and foremost to us as the pastors and the elders, the deacons. And then they have this trickle-down effect into the rest of the congregation. As the leaders go so also the church goes. But don't tune me out, right? You're like, oh, well, so this is like the uh, breakout session for pastors and elders. I'm sorry, I missed the memo, so I'll just go now. No, 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 because you are responsible, all of you, to hold me accountable to be this kind of a youth pastor, to hold us accountable to be these kind of elders. But moreover, all of us are responsible to be these kind of Christians, to have this kind of fellowship with each other. So it's a primarily for the pastors and deacons and the elders, but not only for them. Three facets of fellowship's flavor. Let's take a look at the first. Where the gospel flourishes, people 
are gentle. You can see it there. It just jumps off the page in verse 7. Look at it in your Bible. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now, we're kind of parachuting into this passage, right? Maybe not familiar with the surroundings in First Thessalonians. So let me just give you a brief overview of the context, where we're at in the jungle, right? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had been to Thessalonica on their missionary journeys. And in the process, people get saved, and then they begin a church there in Thessalonica, right? So then eventually, Paul, Timothy, Silvanus, they leave. They're doing missionary work other places, but they write a letter back to the Thessalonians because... After they left, some false teachers creep into the church and start trying to deceive the Thessalonians. And how do they do it? But by trying to undermine Paul. They come in, they're basically talking smack about Paul and his compadres, right? They're basically accusing them of all of these these false accusations. And so Paul is now writing back to them. And you can actually see 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. It's right there, probably on the same page for you. Look at it. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And then as you move along, there's kind of the introductory and greeting and the thanks and the prayer. And then you get into chapter 2. And this paragraph is Paul's defense of himself against the charges of flattery and covetousness glory-seeking, and it's interesting because the way that he defends himself is by reminding the Thessalonians of what they knew was true about him. Six times in this paragraph, in verse 1, 2, 5, 9, 10, and 11, Paul says things like, you remember, you yourselves are our witnesses, or you know Basically, Paul is saying, you remember, don't listen to them. That's, that's not how we were with you. You know, you're our witnesses. That's, that's not how we were. And it helps when you hear this verse, what he says here with what he says right before it, because he says in verse six, take a look, we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we proved to be gentle among you. See, Paul says, we had the authority from God to command you, to tell you how things are, to just lay it down and say, this is how it is, period, no questions asked. We have the authority from God to do that. But that's not what we did. And you remember, we were gentle with you. I love that. Paul says, they were gentle and then he goes on to give an illustration out. Like any good preacher, he wants to paint a picture in the minds of his listeners, of his readers, that's going to help them think and meditate on what he's talking about. But before we jump to Paul's illustration that he gives about ministry, about fellowship, let's think about what he could have said. Or I should say what, what most of the men in the room wish he would have said, which is something like, you know, fellowship, it's like changing the oil in someone else's car. You got to get under there and get all dirty and you get your hands mucky and whatnot, but you're helping them and you're serving them and you're blessing them and their life is going to run smoother because of the way you serve them. Or, you know, fellowship, ministry, it's like when you get a chainsaw and you run through the forest and you're knocking down the forces of the evil one as the trees fall. That's ministry. That's fellowship. Or, oh. Well, Fellowships, like when you get a machine gun, right? these are like men, sir, like men illustrations, right? Like, yeah, when you get like a machine gun or it's like, it's kind of like the oily gears in a big machine. But what does Paul do here? Paul says, babies, mommies. What are you doing, Paul? You're killing us guys. We were counting on you, Paul. Where'd you go? He says, we prove to be gentle among you. Simile is a thing using like or as to make a comparison. Like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And this phrase tenderly cares, it has the idea like warming with bodily heat. Like the mommy's holding the baby close. And I think his intention here is to cause us to stop, paint an image in our mind that we would think about a mother's heart for her newborn baby. The gentleness, the compassion, 
the love. You know, this soft little baby. Uh, I was just thinking about this as the, the Brodsky's baby picture was up there, and Claire and I were like, oh, it's a baby, you know? Uh, and there's this something you can't really explain about a, a mother's relationship with her newborn baby. This, you know, she holds it and rocks it and sings to it and strokes its hair, even changing its diaper. Mom's real careful with the baby, right? There's a gentleness there. You can't fully explain that relationship. And any of us as like dads who've seen it with our wives, it's like, there's something magical going on there that God has done. That's pretty awesome. Mom's love, her gentleness with that baby. Yeah, but we're called to fight for truth, right? Yeah, we need to fight for the truth. Well, yes, but the war on truth is primarily fought against heretics and false teachers. The wolves, not against other sheep in the flock. See, where the gospel flourishes, people are gentle. This is particularly difficult for us to hear as men, right? Uh, That's why we wish Paul didn't use a nursing mother as an illustration of what our fellowship is supposed to be like. We're like, gentleness? Is this like the tender loving care sermon? Like, did I step into the mom's breakout session? I don't know what's going on here, you know? Gentleness isn't manly. Oh, yeah? Because this was written by the Apostle Paul, guys. He's like the, he'll put any of us to shame when it comes to manliness. I mean, I think about the manliness of the Apostle Paul. I think about 1 Corinthians 11. Let me just read this to you. You can jot down 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and following. Listen to this. Paul describes his ministry. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And you think gentleness isn't manly? This dude is manly. The apostle Paul is as manly as they come. Let me tell you something. It's easy to be a jerk. And we've all experienced it in our own lives, guys. You just have that moment where you just aren't practicing self-control. That's easy. That just comes natural to kind of be a jerk. But it takes a real man to be gentle with people because it requires a self-control that only comes through the power of the Spirit because of the depth charge of the gospel in your life. And other men will say, okay, yeah, I agree. I'm not a macho man. I'm not the manly kind of guy. I'm just not really a people person, you know? I'm, not like, I'm more of like a, you know, a theologian. I'm a doctrine guy, you know? Oh, I know. And that's why your favorite book is the book of Romans, Right? Romans, the doctrinal Magna Carta of the New Testament, the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul, and all of that doctrine in the book of Romans all leads up to chapter 16, where Paul just names all of the people that he loved and cared for in Rome. He said, greet this person, a true sister in the Lord. Greet this person who risked his neck for my sake. Greet this person. Tell them I said hi. See, because good theology will make you a gentle people person. Because of what Jesus did for us, we've been changed. We're all about people because we're all about the glory of God in other people's lives. So if you're a theologian, if you're a doctrine guy, but not a gentle people person, then you're a bad theologian. Sorry. You don't have good doctrine because Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.5 to young Pastor Timothy, the goal of our instruction is doctrine. No. The goal of our instruction is love. 
Doctrine is critical. But good doctrine leads to love for people. It's not about how much doctrine you know. It's about how much doctrine you show in the way that you live out a gentle, humble love for the people that God's put in your life. That's why Paul said, if I have all knowledge, which would make him not only the smartest person in this room, in this church, but in the world, if he had all knowledge, he said, if I have all knowledge, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. See, where the gospel flourishes, macho men are made to see the arrogance and self-hurtfulness of male pride. And their insecure self-defense mechanism mask of macho is crushed underfoot by the liberating power of the gospel. And they're made humble, gentle lovers of people. And introverted bookworms are brought out of their shell and out of their study to love people. The books they study drive them out towards the people. And I was even just talking with our pastor, Tim Carnes. I think he's a great example of this. You know, here's a guy that's just wildly introverted and yet he just loves people. He's going all over the place, spending time in your homes, in, in my home. Right? Having me come have lunch with him so that he can disciple me and care about me and love on me and making hospital visits and going and being part of everybody's ministry thing. I mean, it's just incredible. Here's a guy who, as a self-proclaimed introvert, has been liberated from the shackles of introvertism. Is that a word? <laughs> By the gospel. And I just, I love that, that we're a part of that kind of a church. Meanwhile, we tend to think that the ladies kind of have this down just because they're so natural at relationships, right? Have you ever noticed how quickly women seem to just like click? They just bond with each other. It was so vivid for me as we were showing up at Calvary about a year ago. Can you believe we've been here for a year now? Praise the Lord. Uh, As we were showing up at Calvary about a year ago and going to all these different things and meeting all of you, right? I'm, we walk into somebody's house and I'm standing here talking with the guys. Claire's over there talking with the girls. And like four and a half minutes later, I look over and they're all crying together. And I'm like, dudes, we're doing something wrong here. Like what's going on, man? The ladies like, right? Have you noticed this? Like women just seem to be like natural at relationships. And I think, you know, they're natural at relationships sometimes because they're so natural at emotions, right? It doesn't come quite as easy for most men. Uh, But, you know, women struggle with this too, this lack of gentleness. An an emotional conversation is not necessarily an indicator of a deep and gentle relationship, is it? I've I've noticed that you ladies can sometimes struggle with being gentle with each other. For women, this lack of gentle, tender care for one another tends to manifest itself in the kind of a judgmental attitude towards other women right? Almost like there's some fierce competition that nobody else knows about. And the guys are all trying to figure it out, right? Well, huh? Uh, And there's also this thing that um, it's a syndrome that I like to call competitive momism. Have you noticed this? It's, It's particularly fierce on Instagram, so watch out. But whether you're a man or a woman, Uh, We all tend to struggle with this lack of gentleness towards one another, don't we? It just doesn't come natural to us. It's a supernatural thing, isn't it? One of the things that all of us tend to wrestle with, even when we're trying to help people, is that we tend to think helping people grow. And we would all say, like, hey, I'm all about Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, right? The saints do the ministry in each other's lives. Amen. It's not just the pastors. We're all investing in each other's lives and building one another up and challenging and encouraging one another. And we all have a tendency to think that that help with each other's sin should manifest itself in becoming an expert at pointing out other people's sins. You know what I'm talking about? I like that phrase, when all you have is a hammer, everybody looks like a nail. Is that how it goes? Uh, It's like, you know, so we walk around like beating people over the head with our Bible hammer. Like, hey, by the way, bro, hey, love you, man. See some sin in your life. Just wanted to let you know, you know, hey, 
get that sin cleaned up, man. Okay, God loves you. Grow in Jesus. Uh, that's, we do this, don't we? You know, it's, and we laugh because we've all kind of seen it in our own lives. We've had people come and do this to us. And we're like, oh, wow, ouch. Thanks, I think. Uh, but you know what? When we're just hammering each other, pointing out sin, that's not grace. That's not gentle. That's hardly Christian. There's not a gentleness and a love and a compassion there. Well, look at the way Jesus treated the Pharisees, right? Right? I mean, he overthrew the table and the, the money changers, right? Oh, calm down. The Pharisees were false teachers trying to lead people astray from the truth. The Pharisees were not sheep. They were wolves. Where the gospel flourishes, people are gentle. We need to love people and point them to the glory of Jesus Christ in a way that motivates them to live differently more than we just point at their sin. We can't only point at the problem. We also have to point to the solution. For us as believers, that solution is when we see our sin, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. There's a the classic example is, you know, if I have a married couple sitting in my office and the husband's cheated on his wife and I say, do not commit adultery. I haven't helped him yet. Yeah, he's like, I already knew that. That's why we're here. Well, we want some help. See, I haven't helped them until I've shown them how their marriage is a picture of the gospel and how a husband's faithfulness to his wife is a beacon that points to a deeper spiritual reality and that his faithfulness to his wife is a picture of God's faithfulness to his people and Christ's faithfulness to the church and that the husband's faithfulness to his wife has blinding glory behind it around every corner. Now he's motivated to live differently because he sees the meaning behind it all. I don't help people just by pointing at their sin and saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Bible hammer. I help them by pointing them to Jesus, by pointing them to the gospel, by pointing them to the solution and the motivation that we all have to live differently. Where the gospel flourishes, people are gentle with one another. Like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I just wonder if I took an eyedropper, came over to your relationships with other people, and I just took a drop of your, your heart and your attitude for people, and, and I went to a nursing mom. I just went to her and sensed her love for her child and took a drop of that. Put those two drops there and we look at them. Do they look the same? Is that your heart for people? Is that how you love people? As though they're your own children. Like a little baby, gentle. Where the gospel flourishes, people are gentle. We're looking at three facets of fellowship's flavor and that's the first. And the second is where the gospel flourishes, people share their lives. This isn't rocket scientist. You could have come up with this outline. I just want you to see what's here in this passage. Look at it in verse eight. It's right there, smack dab in the middle. Having so fond an affection for you, here it comes. We were well pleased to impart to you or to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. That's awesome. Because you have become very dear to us. Listen to the repetition just in this verse alone. You, we, you, our, you, us. See, Paul's pointing out what their relationship was like, what their fellowship was like. He's showing you the flavor of fellowship. And this word well-pleased is loaded in the Greek with eagerness and happiness and joy to share their lives together. This wasn't drudgery for Paul and the Thessalonians. They were happy to be together. 
And notice what he says. We're well-pleased or eager to share, impart, not only the gospel of God. You have to impart that. You have to share that. But also our very lives. Paul is saying, look, we can just stroll in, plop my Bible down on the pulpit, preach the gospel to you, then go back up and lock myself in my office and put something over the window so you can't get in and lock the door. I'm studying. We shared our very lives with you, Paul says. Suke in the Greek. Literally, we shared not only the gospel of God, but also our very souls. See where the gospel flourishes, people share their lives. Let me ask you, are you sharing your life? Are you sharing your soul with the other believers at Calvary Bible Church? For some of you, the only thing that you share with the other people of this church is the flu. (laughs) Uncomfortable laugh. Uh, Do you have such deep and meaningful relationships with people here that you could tell them anything? You have people in your life like that? You have people in your life like that? You could tell them anything. See, coming to church on Sunday morning and sitting in here and singing some songs and listening to a sermon, this is essential for us, but this is the easy part. Especially because God has blessed us with a really nice building. I mean, like, if the Apostle Paul and the Thessalonians walked in here, they would think we were kidding. They'd be like, sure, the next thing you're going to tell us is we're going to put a colony on Mars. (laughs) But you know what? If our building burns down, What we have left is the most important part about us. If if our building burns down next Saturday night and we all show up here next Sunday morning, we stand in the parking lot, we still have what is most important about what God has given us because we're sharing our lives. Our building has not burned down. Thank you, Captain Obvious. But let's live like all we have is each other. I have to tell you, this this message is ultimately an encouragement for you to believe in and to be a part of the shepherding and discipleship ministry at Calvary. Uh, The small group ministry, the, the discipleship groups, the small groups, the fellowship groups that meet on Sunday mornings when we're not in here. If if you have not already, you need to be involved in a small group. As a believer, not because I think it's a good idea, but because you need to share your life with some people. If you're not involved in a home fellowship group, the Calvary Bulletin that they hand out every week has contact information in there, and you can find out more about it. Or you can go to the website, click on ministries, and drop down thing, and it says, what is it? I wrote it down. Fellowship groups. Kind of obvious. Fellowship groups. If you're not part of one of these you're barely part of this church. You know what? There's nothing more precious as a pastor than to to watch and see the ministry of these fellowship groups and small groups and discipleship groups when a member has a trial in their life or has some kind of tragedy. And it's like all the members of the fellowship groups just, they're just there to meet the need to love on them and to serve them and to care for them and to support them, right? You've seen this. It's just beautiful. And you sit back and go like, man, God is so wise the way he designed the church. You know, it's like when you break your toe or something, right? Like your whole body is like serving the toe right now, right? Like the toe's got an issue. The whole body is affected, right? Like careful, careful, whoa. You know, that's what it's like, right? One of our members is, has some kind of thing that's broken in their lives, and it's like the whole rest of the body just goes, we got to take care of them. We got to love on them. We got to be there for them. And that's what our small groups and our fellowship groups are all about. If you just come in and sit down in here and then you leave and you don't come back or see anyone else until next Sunday, there's no way for us to know. And we want to love on you. We want to help you. We often hear people use the phrase, don't be a Lone Ranger Christian. Have you heard this? 
I want to encourage you, don't be a Lone Ranger Christian. That's a bad idea. Uh, The Lone Ranger was a fictional masked former Texas Ranger who fought outlaws in the American Old West, right? You might remember the show. Uh, I think it was on before I was alive, so I say that because I've seen reruns. Uh, The character, though, has been called an enduring icon of American culture. That's why we're all familiar with the Lone Ranger. And he's often used as an example of someone who did it all on their own, right? He succeeded without the help of anyone, the Lone Ranger. The only problem is the Lone Ranger was never alone. He always had his Native American friend Tonto with him, like always, he was never, and so I was like, what's, what's up with this? So I did a little research, and it turns out uh, the great irony is that the Lone Ranger is called the Lone Ranger not because he was alone, but because he was a ranger in Texas, the Lone Star State. And the Lone Star State Ranger just doesn't really roll off the tongue quite as easily. So he's the Lone Ranger, right? It's the star on the flag that's alone, not the ranger, So while we typically say, don't be a Lone Ranger Christian, I guess we probably should start saying, be a Lone Ranger Christian. Because even he needed Tonto in his life. He couldn't do it alone. And neither can you. So be a Lone Ranger Christian. If that's not confusing enough. (laughs) Do you have close relationships here? Do you have people in your life? And if not, what are you going to do to facilitate them? What are you going to do to make it happen? To have this kind of beautiful fellowship in your life? Are you involved in a small group? Are you part of a discipleship group? Do you meet with anybody to talk about your soul? Just grab coffee, grab juice, something. I'll tell you, one of the highlights of my week, this, just this last week, it's Wednesday afternoon. If you jump in your car and go down Almeida, just right down where after you've passed the freeway, it turns into Riverside. You know what I'm talking about? Just right, that, that whole little area there is kind of starting to be a little hipster spot, which is kind of neat. So there's this juice bar there called the Organic something or another. It's five stars on Yelp, and I highly recommend it. The place is great. Side note. So I'm there with John Lockie, right? And we're just sitting. We grab a smoothie. We're sitting out on Riverside Drive at this little table there. We're sipping our smoothies and just talking about life. And I was just confessing to him, like, you know what? As a dad, I think one of the ways that I want to grow is impatience with my kids. The way that this primarily manifests itself is at bedtime. You know what I'm talking about, moms and dads? Bedtime is like all of a sudden my little six and seven-year-old girls are masters at the art of procrastination and delay. I need a glass of water. You just had some water. I'm thirsty, please. Okay, all right. And then they get back three minutes later from getting a glass of water 10 steps away. And I gotta go potty. You just went potty, but I just had water. Okay. Dad, can we sing another song? Dad, I have a question about Jesus. (laughs) We're not talking about Jesus. Go to bed. Uh, you know what I mean? And, but this really is, like, this is a struggle for me. I just have these moments where it's just the flesh in me is fighting. Because I'm like, it's been a long day, and I am just, I'm ready for bedtime, okay? I'm just, I'm ready. It's bedtime, and I'm ready for bedtime. So go to bed. Uh, and I'm just fighting to be patient with my kids. And so I'm sitting at Juice, sipping a smoothie with Lockie, and we're just talking about this, and just kind of laughing at each other, how silly and foolish we can be over the dumbest things, and just challenging each other to be better fathers, and holding each other accountable to be more faithful and more patient, because it's like, dude, in 10 years, you're not going to care about bedtime. You're going to just wish you were more patient with your kids, and I need that in my life, and you do too. All of us do. Because we would all be quick to admit, yeah, you know, I got ways to grow. I'm still growing and learning. But what are you doing about it? That's what all of us really want. We want these kind of authentic relationships. You see it all over the place in the world. They're trying desperately to come up with ways to manufacture the kind of relationship that we can have because of the gospel. We want someone to share our lives with. So let your guard down. 
Tear down your defense mechanisms and open yourself up to genuine relationships with the other people in this church. You know what? This is self-giving. Giving of yourself. Sharing your soul. And it's dangerous. Sharing your life and opening yourself up to real, transparent relationships The reason we don't open ourselves up to this kind of a relationship is because two reasons. Number one, we're afraid to get hurt. And number two, we're afraid to be discovered. And if it's because you're afraid to be hurt, you just need to see that that's what fellowship is all about. This is why God has given us the church. The church is a context for love to safely exist for you to be free to open up and love other people. And God has put the banner of the gospel over our fellowship and our relationships with each other so that we can live that way. It's like marriage. It's just a context for love to exist. Because I know my wife is never going anywhere. And she knows I'm never going anywhere. I can just open up. And she knows how sinful I am. And I need that in my life. And it's safe because marriage, like the church, is a context for love to exist. Maybe you don't have these kind of relationships because you are afraid of being discovered. Me too. Because I am sinful. There's more wickedness in my heart than I ever care to say out loud. It's terrifying to me. And the last thing I want is for anybody else to know about it. The last thing I want is for you to think that I'm not perfectly fine. You know what I mean? The great irony is that my sin causes me to shut people out when the very means that God has ordained for us to kill that sin is to let people in. See, my sin causes me to keep you out, but the only way I can get better is by letting you in so that you can minister the healing balm of the gospel to my heart and my soul. And that's what we need. So share your lives with one another. You need this. We need this. And frankly, on your deathbed, the only thing that will matter to you about this life, as you look ahead and see Jesus in your future, you're about to be ushered into the presence of King Jesus in eternity forever. And you look back at your life and the only thing that will matter to you is the people who you shared your life with or the regret that you have because you didn't share your life. You will not lay on your deathbed and think about how grateful you are for that car. You won't think about your salary or your career or your degree. You won't think about your house. You won't be laying on your deathbed thinking, man, I'm so glad glad we had those marble countertops installed. You're going to be thinking about your wife and your kids and the people that are sitting around you right now who you've shared your lives with or you will be dying in regret that you have not shared your life. Where the gospel flourishes, people are gentle. Where the gospel flourishes, people share their lives. Third, where the gospel flourishes, people have good reason. See, this isn't just an arbitrary gentleness or an arbitrary sharing of our souls. There's something underneath all of this. It's not just like, hey, I got an idea. Let's be gentle with each other. Can everybody agree? Okay, good. Hey, I got another idea. Let's all share our lives together. Does that sound cool? Yeah, good. Okay. We got a pack. No, no, no. This isn't just an arbitrary decision to live in a certain way. There's, like we said, a motivation here. There's something under the surface of all of this. And it starts in our heart. And that's what Paul says Look at verse 8. It's like the brackets around what we just looked at. He begins by saying, having so fond an affection for you. And he ends by saying, because you had become very dear to us. Why were they gentle with one another? Why were they sharing their lives together? Because they genuinely, truly loved one another. This wasn't a manufactured thing. 
And this isn't unique to the Thessalonians and to Paul either, right? This is just normal Christianity. This is what our Savior said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love, one for another. We think, man, I really want when unbelievers are like hanging around with us, I really want them to see the gospel. I really want them to see Christianity. And Jesus says, Christianity looks like love. That's what they'll see. And that makes sense because God is love. Jesus even told his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also love one another. And we have to be careful here that we don't collapse love into duty, right? Like it's really easy for us to think about like the duties of the Christian life and on the list is love. And you click the twirly triangle and it all folds up and it's duty. See, love is an action. Love is a verb, but it might be better to say love is a deep-seated feeling. We're scared of feeling language, but love is a deep-seated feeling that results in action. It is a gut-level emotion that motivates us to action. And this is exactly why Paul says the reason he felt this way about the the Philipponians? No, the Philippians. (laughs) Awesome. He says in Philippians 1, verses 7 and 8, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn. That's not a duty. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I love the King James here. I yearn for you all with the bowels of Christ Jesus. It's this gut level, intense feeling of care and compassion and concern for the people that God has put in our lives. But that love doesn't happen naturally. It happens because we've been transformed by the gospel. And it happens when you see yourself with other believers as brothers and sisters in the trenches together for the progress of the gospel. You don't attack the people that are in the trenches with you. You love them because you're fighting for one another's souls. This past Veterans Day, we were with our family over at McCambridge Park. And they were having the Veterans Day memorial ceremony. There were like planes flying overhead and people playing music and singing. And here are these men, the veterans, coming together to remember something that for some of them was 50 and 60 years ago. They've got their uniforms on, their 101st Airborne Division medals, and they're just looking awesome. You know, you're like, Everybody's just looking up to these guys. And one of the guys walks over and puts his hand on the plaque, just rubs his fingers across the names of the people who were his classmates at Burbank High School that died in the war. There was a war that they fought in. They are veterans. This one thing has forever redefined their lives and their very identity and brought them into a relationship with each other that will define them until the day that they die. Brothers and sisters, are we not fighting spiritual warfare together? Spiritual warfare for the sake of our own souls and for our friends and for our family and for our coworkers and for our neighbors. We fight alongside one another in the progress of the gospel like brothers and sisters in the trenches. And the gospel declares that Jesus has already won the victory. And this one thing, this gospel, has forever redefined our lives and our very identity And it's brought us into a relationship with each other that will redefine us for the rest of our lives until the day that we die. And that's what it means to say we have fellowship with one another. The more you see that, the more you understand it, the more this flavor of fellowship will become characteristic of your life. That's what made the Thessalonians such a great church. They were trumpeting the gospel and advancing the truth. It was resonating from their church with passion. 
Paul even mentions it here on the same page. 1 Thessalonians 1, look at verse 8. He says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we don't even need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And maybe this is just it. Maybe you're not experiencing this kind of fellowship because you have not experienced this kind of transforming gospel work in your life. You haven't been saved. Maybe you still need to turn to God from your idols and serve the living and true God. Maybe you don't have this kind of fellowship because you're not living in such a way that you're waiting for the return of his son from heaven. You have not been delivered from the wrath by Jesus. And so, of course, you don't have this kind of fellowship because your eyes have not yet been opened. See, the Thessalonians had this sweet flavor to their fellowship because they had been staggered by the gospel. They were captivated by Jesus. It changed everything about them. And if we want a church like the Thessalonians have, then we need leaders like this. We need members like this. We need teenagers that live like this on Burbank High School campus and John Burroughs campus. We need moms who live at home like this and who go to work like this. We need fathers who lead their families like this and singles who serve the church like this. We all need to be gentle people sharing our very souls with one another because we have been forever changed by the gospel and we have been staggered by the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want us to be this kind of a church, deeply sharing our lives and carrying one another's burdens and growing together in glory. That's worth losing everything that this world has to offer. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And I think that's what you want too. And Father, I know that's what you want. I know you want us to be this kind of a church. And we rejoice, God, that in so many ways you have made us this kind of a church where we have the privilege to share our lives together. You have radically transformed us, God. Who is sufficient for these things that you've entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation to the world. Father, you said that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not stand against it. And some colony on Mars may never be built, God, but you will build your church and we are part of something far greater than any mission to Mars. So let our fellowship be sweet, Father, as we gently love care for one another, sharing our lives, God. Let us partner together in the advance of the gospel. Use us, Father, that we would reach Burbank and reach Glendale and reach Hollywood. Lord, let your gospel reach this world and open the eyes of the blind that they would all see there is none like you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.